0: I'm Chris Martin, and this is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. The show is produced by Heterodox Academy. You can find out more about us at heterodoxacademy.org. You can also find us on Facebook under Heterodox Academy and on Twitter at HDX Academy. Today I'll be talking to Christine Laguerre. She's an associate professor of psychology at UT Austin, and her research focuses on cultural learning. If you've been a regular listener of Half Hour of Heterodoxy, you've heard the episode in which I talked to her about socioeconomic diversity. Today, she's returning to the show, and I'm going to talk to her about teaching techniques, and specifically about two issues. First, how to teach in a way that reaches out to students, regardless of political ideology and religion. And second, how to deal with controversial topics. So here is Christine Laguerre. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's a pleasure to have you back. I wanted to talk to you this time about teaching a diverse audience of students. In terms of political ideology, how diverse would you say UT Austin is?
1: Well, I would say that is a, a relative judgment. So compared to a student population, I would imagine at uh, UC Berkeley or um, a school in the Boston area where the, the population tends to be um, have a different political composition, UT Austin would be substantially more diverse than a university in in other regions, perhaps. Uh, now, the city of Austin is um, is much more left-leaning than the rest of the state. So it is, it is a mix, but I, I certainly have students who come from all political persuasions in my courses.
0: Would you say if it's diverse enough that if you had a conservative student in one of your courses, they wouldn't feel like they were the only one in the class?
1: I think that probably depends on the class. Um, I certainly put a lot of effort into making clear that the whole purpose of, of higher education, from my perspective, is to discuss um, all manner of different sorts of perspectives and ideas, uh, political ideas, as well as scientific ideas. Uh, but it is hard to say. I mean, it, it depends a lot by discipline, of course, at any university.
0: That's true. In terms of religion, how diverse would you say your classes are?
1: I would say very diverse. Uh, in, in fact, I would say that that the majority of the students in my classes are are religious, at least in, in, in name, although, you know, there are some who are, um, who are practicing, um, the majority are affiliated with some religious denomination for sure. Um, their, you know, attendance varies. And I would say that, uh, there are atheists. There are, um, many students of different Christian backgrounds. There are Muslims, there are, there are Jews, Hindus, there's the whole Buddhists, the whole spectrum,
0: so when you started teaching, how did you learn to teach in a way that addressed the needs of people of diverse ideologies and diverse religions?
1: Uh, I think I, I took on that particular educational initiative um, based primarily on my own my own interests. Uh, there, there is a lot of, of emphasis, I think, placed on accommodating students of, not just accommodating, but including students of different backgrounds and persuasions. At UT, there are teaching resources available for this. Uh, I, I think that it, there's enormous variation among the faculty in how much this is emphasized and how much training there is. I, in my own kind of personal background, I um, I did competitive debate when I was younger, um, when I was in high school and when I was in college, and that that is all about taking on you know different perspectives and fully developing arguments on kind of both sides of an issue or multiple sides, not just, there's, of course, not just two sides. So I, I suppose it is a, a function of kind of my own um, kind of personal, I suppose, and professional interests.
0: So when you were an undergrad and grad student, do you think you had specific role models or did you take specific workshops at UT Austin that really helped with this?
1: Uh, in in graduate school at the University of Michigan, there were a lot of different resources available for improving teaching. Uh, UT Austin has some of those. I'm not sure a large, there are very many that are specifically dedicated to this sort of issue. Um, and to be fair, it's it's hard to get hard to make general and sort of abstract recommendations for how to tackle something like this because it's. It's not as though there there's only um, kind of one way to approach something like this. I think part of the, the the challenge in doing this effectively is kind of is gauging the climate within your classroom. Um, the more you know about your students, and the more the more of a personal rapport you have with them, the more they trust you to tackle some of these issues. Uh, doing this in a that, I suppose that's why doing this in a kind of generic way is is a challenge. Not that there aren't certain best principles. Um, but the more personal connection you have with your students, um, the better this tends to go in my experience.
0: So are there any specific techniques you would say that someone who is trying to learn to teach should know very well to build rapport?
1: Yes. So there are a lot of different things that I would recommend. Um, one is to one is to set the stage within a class to accommodate lots of different perspectives. Uh, a student... Uh, Students should have exposure to a great variety of different perspectives. And and often students aren't aware that there are many, many different ways to to view or reason about a particular topic. Um, So I think the first step is educating students that there are, in fact, lots of different ways of approaching a topic. There are a lot of different opinions about the topics. Um, people have different values concerning topics. So, setting that stage, I think, is very helpful. I think having a general discussion about the need to represent multiple different perspectives is helpful too. And uh, making clear that this is a space that this is an educational space where lots of different ideas are going to be presented. And some of those ideas might not be ideas that you've heard of before, uh, that you at first blush agree with, um, or Ideas that you might never agree with, and then that's also fine, <laughs> right? The goal of an edu- of a classroom is not to to develop consensus, right? It it's it's critical to have mutual respect. So, a an educator, professor, lecturer can set the stage for a climate that is respectful, um, and so that's another that's a, a critical um, technique. I think also assigning papers critical thinking exercises where students are required to develop multiple sides of an argument uh, from different perspectives, including perspectives that uh, are not their own. I think this is a kind of a a very provocative but also um, instructive opportunity for students because they are very, very infrequently ever required to develop an argument from the perspective of someone else, uh, someone that they don't necessarily agree with. Often, when you're asked to disc- to talk about a you know particular topic or um, present an argument of some sort, you almost always take your own you know your own side <laughs> um, and present an argument um, that you already agree with, and and of course all the the problems associated with that, which are selectively. Um, picking out evidence that confirms what you already think are true, like that sort of thing. So uh, one of the things that I most like to do in classes is to have them present both sides of an argument. Um, That's another, I think, think thing that helps a lot. Another thing, kind of a general comment that I wanted to make about this is that in addition to the unique challenges of discussing controversial topics... There are some challenges associated with getting students deeply engaged in intellectual discourse. So as you well know, a lot of of high school education, uh, a lot of university education involves sitting passively as a recipient of information from others. So students are often expecting to go into a class and have an expert, a teacher, an educator lecture to them for 50 minutes or 60 minutes or 75 or whatever the case is and kind of passively take down notes or in some cases just download the powerpoints and it is a it is often a challenge to teach students how to be more engaged and to take more responsibility for their own learning so that's just another layer of um of challenge in having these kinds of seminar type environments or having a seminar type environment in a large class where most often students expect to just to be passive um, and to receive information and and not to engage in in a dialogue really at all, (laughs) much less a controversial one.
0: Speaking of seminars, I remember when I came to the US as an international student, I felt very insecure about talking in seminars which brings me to the topic of when you are in a seminar class, do you sometimes notice that one or two students talk very little, possibly because they don't feel comfortable? And what do you do in that situation?
1: Well, it's often the case that those students you know present their opinions in other formats. So this is where it's really critical to give them opportunities to participate in you know critical reflection exercises that that tend to be you know written. Um, they can participate in you know email exchange through um, classroom chats online. That's a format that I've used before. So I think providing students with multiple ways to be engaged is important. And I find in, in classes of, of 30, once the climate is set, once people are comfortable having discussions with each other and, and start to like each other and start to enjoy that as a format, um, the vast majority of the students participate. Um, it's, it's in fact very rare that, that we get no one participating. Um, I mean, that said, I think it is critical to create multiple ways to, to participate to accommodate people who, um, who might enjoy speaking in public context more than others. I do also make clear to my students that the ability to articulate your, your thoughts in public context is, uh, really a critical tool in, in basically all occupations. So it's, it is true that it's, it can be a little bit nerve wracking and some students feel quite nervous about it and that's normal and natural. Um, but it's, I think it's a critical activity, uh, critical skill to master. So that is one of the things that I, um, I mention when I make clear to students that this is not going to be a typical, um, you sit there and take notes or not, uh, and I will give you all this information. It's just, they have to participate. Um, And I find that to be as much scaffolding as typically necessary.
0: So if you had a situation where say a junior instructor tried to teach a controversial topic and maybe taught it in an optimal way or not so optimal way, but either way they got an official complaint let's say that the student complained to the Dean of Undergraduate Education that the professor had been insensitive, what would you say a professor should do?
1: Well, you know, the, the first thing I, I think of when I, um or I thought of when you that, asked that question is, how do you know if something's controversial? I think that isn't a, it's not a trivial point. There are topics that would, that are tremendously controversial to some and uh, really not even noteworthy to others. So, I mean that said, there are generally speaking some topics that are probably going to be controversial to a lot of people. Uh, But I I think that it's it's not necessary to go into a discussion with the assumption that this is going to be controversial. In fact, there are very few cases where I preface a conversation in that particular way. Um, So if if you, as a junior person or senior for that matter, find yourself in a situation where a student has um, has complained. I think the the first question is understanding the content of the complaint. So there are cases where topics are handled in tremendously insensitive ways by faculty, and and so it would really depend on the content of the of the complaint. I've never personally had any experience with this, and knowing the basis for the the um, disagreement or complaint, I think, is pretty critical. So. I mean, give me an example of what they might be uncomfortable about, just having this topic raised at all, the way it was treated. Give me some more detail there.
0: Well, to take an example from religion, since that's what you study, if you take religions and you talk about sexual practices, there are a number of religions, probably a majority of religions, that forbid some practices. Now, if you were to try to get someone who's very liberal to understand why someone else might think that, say, homosexuality is immoral, you might have to show it from the perspective of the person who thinks that homosexuality is immoral. I'm sort of translating a story that Jonathan Haidt has. He actually had one official complaint filed against him for a similar issue. So that's an issue where a student might say, you're saying that maybe it's respectable in some way to think that homosexuality is actually immoral, and that's just not tolerable.
1: I suppose my reaction to that sort of, a complaint of that sort um, perhaps one way to head that off. I mean, I, I, first of all, I think it's, it's quite extraordinary that, um, that John's had only one complaint ever. I mean, I think that's worth worth pointing out, <laughs> right? So
0: you may have had more, that's the only one he's publicly talked about.
1: Okay. <laughs> but still, um, these, I think these complaints don't occur as often as you might assume. Um, but in, in that particular case, having a a more general discussion in the context of classrooms about what, what the objectives of a at least nominally secular <laughs> democratic society are. Uh, and, and, and that's actually a topic that we discuss in class quite a lot. Uh, the, the, the fact there isn't an official religion, the fact that we live in a tremendously diverse country with an extraordinary variety of different perspectives, and the Objective of policies and laws is to protect the rights of everyone, including those that have very, very different beliefs. Um, and and legislating religious beliefs is, um, I would say, not an appropriate practice for a democratic, secular country. Um, that said, people do have the right to have religious beliefs, and that's a you know we are there are many many Americans who are religious. There are many. People who are religious, who have um, you know deeply felt moral principles that are important to them, and there are, there's going to be some disagreement about these sorts of things. So um, yeah, I, I I don't know if that sort of thing is fully unavoidable. <laughs> um, I I certainly don't think that there's any um, there's any reason to avoid having open conversations based on concern about this sort of thing. Um, you know, most students can can handle it and and if a student is upset about something like this, they do have the right to to complain. Um, and also I think faculty do have a right to <laughs> disagree with that complaint. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I don't know how common it is. I don't think there's ever been a really good representative survey about how often a faculty member deals with this. It's
1: hard to get those data.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but if you go to something like the FIRE conference or any talk about academic freedom on a typical university campus, you'll have one or two professors say, you know, I've just stopped talking about these two or three topics preemptively because I'm afraid this may happen or this one bad incident happened to me. And when you're a professor, you're already under a lot of stress. So you really don't want to deal with one more issue.
1: I suppose that's, that is true. But then again, what occupation doesn't have some of that risks risk associated with it, right? I mean, just you think about social media. I, I frankly feel much more concerned about expressing opinions, uh, I still do. <laughs> but I, I feel relatively more under threat in the context of social media than I do in the context of a classroom. I think primarily because of the, um, I think the anonymity of social media often makes people, uh, it kind of depersonalizes and doesn't make people accountable for being respectful to others. So, I mean, there are certainly cases where, you know, students need anonymity in the context of a complaint in order to, um, to protect themselves, and, and and I suppose that there's a, a time and a place for that sort of thing. And I think the more anonymous these sorts of interactions are, the um, in some ways the more they protect bad behavior <laughs> and protect mean-spirited behavior. Allow people to say things that I sincerely doubt they would say in the context of an interpersonal interaction. Um, I also think that these these sorts of complaints are more likely in much larger classes that are more um, that are more anonymous. Probably unavoidable. Um, the more you you kind of know where someone's coming from, and as I say, have rapport and have trust, the less likely students are going to misunderstand the um, the perspective of the the faculty. Um, on average. Right? That's it's. There's no way to completely avoid this sort of thing, um, and people have the right to be wrong, right? Faculty are wrong, students are wrong. It it does happen. <laughs> We're all wrong, all of us. <laughs> Some more than others.
0: Some more. I guess that's what research is supposed to do: figure out where you got things wrong.
1: Absolutely, uh, and and having this space available in higher education is critical to fostering productive social discourse, we need to have these opportunities within higher education. And this is really important business, academic business, I think.
0: Mm -hmm. When it comes to social media, I think there's some degree of representative or availability bias in the sense that there are some people who deliberately don't create Twitter accounts, but you don't see them because they're not on Twitter. I think we maybe slightly overestimate the number of people who spend time on Twitter Twitter is just a very combative medium,
1: right? Although you you know find that probably in all all platforms, you know I was thinking back to the, the the best practice. One of the things that I have done, very I think very productively in in previous classes, is have discussions about social media style debates, not necessarily on social media, but but debates that are in the popular media, and show examples from different sides of an issue that represent best practice, right? And also some examples that represent, uh, really suboptimal practice <laughs> and, and look at how the debates are, um, the quality of the debates go up with best practice and go down and really devolve into something that can be vicious and aggressive when best practice is not, um, uh, upheld. So it, and you have that kind of space to um, to discuss these issues. Another helpful thing is when I have those discussions, it's not about a topic that we are we are personally invested in in that class at that particular time. So we will dis- we can kind of critically evaluate the style of the ar- the argument argumentation or the debate uh, and discuss what makes this a, a good effective. Um, and respectful strategy for presenting information um, and for evaluating other people's information. Uh, and and really having a discussion about what the objective of this is. So if, is your objective to present information in such a way that it's so accessible and makes so much sense that others are persuaded by it? Is that what you're trying to do? Because if that's what you're trying to do, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to do, and I recommend it, your the style of your argumentation, the way you're presenting evidence, also taking the time to truly understand where someone else is coming from, and to accurately represent their beliefs, which is often not part of public discourse. Unfortunately, um, you need to observe or you need to practice all of those different um, all those different things in order to do this effectively.
0: Yeah, two encouraging things. Really, I discovered not recently, actually two years ago. I discovered a site called Cora. It's Q-U-O-R-A. It's a, it's a high-traffic site, so a lot of people post there. And it's a place where you post questions. They can be of a political nature, of a personal nature, career-oriented questions. Um, and there might be a few bots posting some of these, but in general, I get the impression that these are real people posting under their real name. And people answer, and other users on the site upvote or downvote answers. It's a bit like Reddit. So if you write a really rude answer, you're much more likely to just get downvoted. So there's an incentive to actually write a good answer. I know someone else tried to create a site Mm. like this just for politics, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it really took off. But Quora seems to have tens of thousands of users. Also on Reddit, there's a subreddit called Change My Mind. Nice. So you can actually say, you can post there and say, hey, my opinion about health insurance is that we should... Let's say we should not have universal health insurance. Hmm. Convince me that I'm wrong. And sometimes people there actually are convinced. I think you get some <laughs> kind of badger award. Nice. If you really change someone's mind. No, I,
1: I, I like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, they're kind of under the radar because it's not Twitter.
1: It, it also, implicit within that, assumes that you are willing to have your mind changed, right? You know, this is effectively changing someone else's mind, I think, means that you're open to the same and that, that openness to new ideas is, there, that is a, a democratic value in principle, right? And, and that is something that you can model through best practice. You can also model through kind of personal anecdote where your own beliefs have been changed uh, and, you know, kind of leading students through the thought exercise of how that process occurred and why that occurred. One of the things that I, I find troubling, and I, I see this in even in academic debates or discourse on, online, is the amount of personal attack, um, the amount of, of uh, sort of questioning of intelligence, right? Because that's, that's, you know, that's a low blow in academia, right? If you, if you criticize someone's IQ or their intelligence or their scientific abilities or their aptitudes, I'm astonished at how often comments in debates Go that direction. Uh, I saw some of that this morning, in fact. And everyone who's been subject to that sort of thing knows how tremendously destructive that is. Also, how hurtful it is. As an inst- as an educator, as an instructor, I go out of my way to remind students, um, as future adults, maybe they're current adults, they're some are adults, some are aspiring adults, some are hopefully will be adults someday. <laughs> Remind them that you really need to treat other people with respect, no matter how much you disagree with them. Um, not just because ethically, morally, that's the right thing to do. But also, not treating other people with respect reflects really terribly upon you. I mean, I, I read through some of these things and think, mm, that <laughs> how do people lack the meta knowledge that saying something that disrespectful to somebody else is? personally, a terrible reflection on their own character. Um, yeah. <laughs> and the, the anonymity, some people do this without, <laughs> with their own names, but this is where the anonymity, I think, makes this, um, really exacerbates this, um, this situation online.
0: So I'd like to wrap up, but just touching on our last question, do you hear from students either through course evaluations or office visits that they really like the way you handle controversial topics or that they're unhappy? How do you get feedback on these things
1: well i I get lots of feedback in kind of personal notes from students, so you know i, I got a student uh, had a student evaluation i suppose last semester that commented on the emphasis that I place on critical thinking uh, and how much she enjoyed that and and also how different a class like this is and, and there and not every student immediately takes to this format, right? So some students having spent many years in a very passive state within higher education and are expecting someone to tell them exactly the material that they should know. And that's not the point of the classes that I teach. <laughs> I mean, we do discuss content, of course, but I am also, I mean, another part of this is I'm curious about what they think, really. My, I don't view my role as purely to transmit information that they don't know. I learn a tremendous amount from my students. And we also produce academic content through discussion that I would never have been able to produce without them. They're a critical part of the learning process and their opinions are interesting to me. That that helps tremendously. Giving giving these students the impression that what they have to say is genuinely valuable and interesting. I know that sounds kind of trite and, and silly, but they appreciate that, uh, and it's it it needs to be genuine. I think <laughs> that's a. I suppose that's where my earlier comment about how there there aren't abstract general principles that you can use to do this effectively at least exclusively right there are some things you probably shouldn't do um, but a lot of this has to do with the connection you have with other people and um, you think about cases where uh, i'm sure in your own experience of receiving criticism people receive criticism um, much more effectively when they trust and have a connection with the person giving the criticism. It's very, I think, I think it's a very, very different experience when you get critical feedback um, from someone that you don't have a connection with uh, and you, you don't necessarily have any reason to trust. So this is, this is another reason why, you know, having so much of higher education occur in the context of very large classrooms um, Without a lot of interpersonal, kind of direct contact with faculty is is a challenge. I think it, this, this sort of thing can be done in that context, but it is a, a more challenging thing to do.
0: Yeah, I don't know how it's done at most online universities, but I know Western Governors University actually makes you have office hours where your students can talk to you one-on-one remotely. So it's not just this anonymous system where you're just watching your professor as a talking head.
1: That's a, that's a great idea, and I, I like that format because it allows for students who might be quite intimidated to speak up in front of a large class, um, an opportunity to have that one-on-one interaction. Uh, but the the class that I taught most recently on religion, we had students from all religious backgrounds, uh, and and also atheists and. Humanists and uh, students from basically every major world religion in that class and students that varied in, in how, um, how devout they were without any problem whatsoever. Um, and, and so it's, it, it, is, it is something that can be done. Um, but maybe it's a multi-stage process where step one is acclimating students to having a discussion for a, a large portion of every class that their active participation is, is critical. And I think once students realize that you really mean that, <laughs> that you really are going to have a discussion and their contribution is critical, most of them really take it on board and enjoy that. Um, but the, the feedback that I've gotten has been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, and I think the, the only negative feedback that I've gotten is not about the controversy per se, but a little bit of pushback against them having to do the work to, to participate. <laughs> it's more work to be prepared to have an educated and productive intellectual discourse. And you have to do that in my classes. <laughs> just sitting back there and, and just having to kind of download my notes is, is not enough.
0: Well, when I think it comes to student feedback, you're always going to get some students complaining about doing things that they simply have to do. I once taught a 9 a.m. course, and at least two or three students complained that the course started at 9 a.m. I was like, you knew this when you signed up for the course, and I have no control over it.
1: Yeah, there's no pleasing. There's no pleasing, everyone. And and you know, when I started my faculty position, I got advice from a a colleague, which I didn't take. Uh, for a number of different reasons, but back in course evaluations and increasing positive feedback. I mean, one of the podcasts you should do in the future is the, uh, all of the problems associated with student evaluations of classes. Um, Yeah, there are a lot of problems there. Um, In fact, I I looked over a website uh, that evaluated faculty um, and the amount of feedback that was associated with things like, this was too much work, the class started at 9am, um, extraordinarily inappropriate comments about faculty's physical appearances, some ad hominems. St- uh, I'm concerned about that as a, an outlet for evaluating teaching. And I think because teaching evaluations are, um, there's no quality control per se. I'm not exactly sure how you would do this, but it um, there's a, a way in which feedback is is not associated at all with the quality of learning, right? There's, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with, um, how biased student evaluations can be, um, against members of particular groups and how they're not a good predictor of what students actually learn. Uh, and I, but I think that fear of that kind of negative feedback is, is also, um, reducing faculty's willingness to have discussions that, that might ruffle feathers or, um, might get students to in any way negatively evaluate them so that i i think that's part of what's going on as well Um, and keep in mind these are of course totally anonymous uh they're anonymous on the part of the the students they're not (laughs) they they put kind of permanent records online about faculty so um this is a i would say this is a not this is not a good system (laughs) it's really not even for for evaluations that are in-house and are um are confidential, uh, this is, there's no accountability whatsoever. Um, and it's also an outlet to be um, unfairly critical um, for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with <laughs> anything reasonable in terms of expectations for a course. <laughs> I had to read in this course. <laughs> I'm unhappy about this. Well, there's not too much I can I can do to help you there. So th- those sorts of things are are, are outside the purview of the, of um, things faculty can change, I suppose.
0: True. Well, I think this is a good point to wrap up the discussion. I'll find someone who can talk to that issue.
1: Yes, I I think it's it's a, a, worth having uh, multiple different people weigh in on it because um, I I do think it's it's problematic. And I think students use some of these outlets to determine the kind of courses that they take for reasons that are often um, from an academic perspective, not good ones. So, and, and of course it, it is a, it is a deterrent Um, that kind of negative feedback on the uh, receiving that kind of feedback at the level of, you know, faculty is definitely a deterrent from having topics of you know controversial topics discussed in classes
0: that's true well thank you for joining us on this episode
1: yeah my pleasure nice talking to you